Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, who caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we might hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Some 4,000 years ago, God spoke to an old man named Abram. God told Abram to leave his gods and his home behind. And in return, God made many promises to Abram. God would give him a new land. God would bless him and make his name great. And through Abram, God intended to bless all the families of the earth. God also promised to give Abraham offspring. From his line would come the Redeemer prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. From Abram and Sarai would come descendants as innumerable as the sand. And yet, Abram and Sarai remain childless. Now, we're not going to go in depth on chapters 16 and 17 of Genesis this time around, but in those chapters, Abram and Sarai attempt to fulfill this promise by their own power. God had said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. But Abram and Sarai attempt to bring this about by the power of their own flesh. Sarai plays the part of Eve. She tells Abram to obtain children through her servant Hagar. Abram plays the part of Adam. He listens to Sarai. He grasps after forbidden fruit and through Hagar brings forth a son named Ishmael. But this is contrary to God's will. God promised offspring to Abram through his wife, not through her servant. So God reiterates his promise to Abram and to Sarai. And with this promise of new creation, God gives Abram and Sarai new names. Abraham and Sarah. Sarah will give birth to a son, God says. And he is to be named Isaac. His name means laughter. His birth will be a holy joke between God and man. And God will establish his covenant with Isaac and with Isaac's offspring. And, and the promises to Abraham will carry on through his line. And what will be the sign of this covenant? God calls Abraham to circumcise himself and the men of his household. See, Abraham had attempted to bring about the promises of God by the power of his own flesh. And so, accordingly... God calls him to be wounded in his flesh, a wound to that part of his body by which he bears children. It's a sign that God's promises will not be accomplished by human flesh, not by human power and pride, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. God will bring forth the promised seed of the woman by his power, not by man's. And so Abraham does as the Lord commands. The power of the flesh is rebuked, and the promise of God remains strong. And Abraham and Sarah must wait in faith for the Lord to work in his 
timing. And that brings us to chapter 18, chapter 18 of Genesis. It opens with Abraham living under the shade of the mighty oaks of Mamre, just as he lives under the protection and rest of God's covenant. And one day, Abraham lifts up his eyes, and he sees three men in front of him. And he runs out to meet them, and he bows himself to the earth. Now we come to find that this is no ordinary visitor. The text tells us it is God himself appearing in the form of a man. We learn in chapter 19 the two men with him are actually angels. Now, at what point Abraham realizes this, uh, we're not told. We don't know. But from the moment he sees the men, Abraham shows the hospitality so highly valued in the ancient world. And he prepares a feast for the strangers and he stands by to serve them while they eat. Exalted Father takes the posture of a servant before God. And so what we have here is a meal with God. It is communion with God. What we have is a, a foreshadowing of the system of worship that God will later establish for the children of Abraham and Sarah under the law of Moses. For all of the Israelite worship, all their animal sacrifices, these are said to be meals for God, meals in the presence of God. It's still the way that we draw near to God in the Lord's Supper. We come to feast on the Lamb who was slain in the presence of our God. And in the scriptures, whenever you have a meal with God, you also have the word of God proclaimed. And that's why we always have the preaching of the word along with the sacrament of the altar. You see, it's no different here in Genesis 18. At this meal with the Lord, God brings a word for Abraham. Chapter 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's the gospel sermon for that day, delivered by God himself. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, Sarah is just inside the tent. She's eavesdropping. And when she hears this promise, the text tells us, verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Verse 13, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Now, it's kind of hard to know how to read Sarah's laughter here, isn't it? Does she laugh because the idea is so far-fetched, so ridiculous? Or does she laugh because it seems too good to be true? Or perhaps both? Either way, we see Isaac is appropriately named laughter, right? His very existence is a wondrous joke. And either way, the Lord's gospel to Sarah is this. Nothing is impossible for me. I can make the barren womb fruitful. Now, we know how the story ends, and we know it so well that we forget how laughable it would have seemed to Sarah and to Abraham. Abraham himself was rolling on the floor laughing over this holy joke back in chapter 17. Between howls, Abraham chortled, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham thought it was a joke too. You must be joking, Yahweh. This sort of thing doesn't happen. It goes against the laws of nature. So perhaps that's why the Lord has to do it over and over again in this book. In Scripture, we find God is continually making the barren womb bear fruit. Sarah is the first, but the same thing will happen with Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, with Rachel, the mother of Joseph. It happens to the mother of Samson and to Hannah, the mother of Samuel. In the New Testament, God does this for Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And so over and over, God makes the barren womb fruitful that the seed of the woman may be born to battle the seed of the serpent. And these stories, they lead us to another impossible conception. A mother even less likely to bear children than aged Sarah. The birth of Jesus from the womb of the Virgin Mary. Many have laughed at the absurdity of this holy joke. But even there, God is not finished. From there, he brings about the most impossible birth. A birth from the belly of the grave, from Sheol, the barren womb, the belly that only devours, the womb that never gives birth. But by the power of God, the barren tomb has become a fruitful womb. Jesus Christ is born again from the grave, resurrected, glorified, the conquering son of Abraham and Sarah, the long-awaited seed of the woman. And this 2,000-year story of barren wombs turned fruitful is only a shimmer in the stranger's eye as he winks and says to Sarah, Is anything too hard for the Lord? So Abraham and Sarah share a feast with God and they receive a word from Him. The, the promise repeated, the covenant renewed. And they receive in faith and by God's grace, we do the same this morning. Tears in our eyes at the wonder and the glory of this holy joke. In verse 16, the visitors get up to continue their journey. They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Now remember, Sodom is where Abraham's nephew Lot chose to settle. And last week we saw him kidnapped from there, and Abraham rescued him and returned him to his home. So Sodom has a reputation. Back in chapter 13, we learned the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So now the Lord has looked down. He has come down to evaluate these great sinners against him. In chapter 6, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth in the days of Noah. In chapter 11, God came down to see the city in the Tower of Babel. Here, God comes around to evaluate the wickedness of the city of Sodom. And Abraham's going with him. So look at this strange fellowship. We have the Lord God himself. We have two angels at his side, and we have Abraham. One of these things is not like the other, right? Who allowed this mere mortal to invade the council of the heavenly hosts? God did. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Well, why not? 
In general, you do hide from us what you plan to do, Lord. We don't know what you might do a year from now or a week from now. We don't even know what you might do in the next five minutes. Now, heads up every now and then might be helpful. But you do hide from us what you are about to do all the time, Lord. Paul, quoting Isaiah, says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And the implied answer is, no one. And yet, here God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see, because of this covenant with Abraham, because of what Abraham has been promised, because of what Abraham has been called to, God invites Abraham into the divine council. God invites Abraham into his planning session. Abraham is God's chosen one. He is the mediator of the covenant. He is the channel through which God's blessing will pass to the entire world. It's as if Abraham is God's son and, and he's being brought into the family business, right? He has to see how God acts. He has to see how God conducts his business in righteousness and justice so that Abraham can imitate God in his own actions. As another chosen one will later say, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So God brings Abraham into the divine council. And it's shocking enough that the sovereign Lord of the universe would bring a man into his council. What's even more surprising is that God actually listens to what Abraham says. Verse 20, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, Abraham knows all about Sodom. Remember, he already saved Sodom once back in chapter 14. And after that battle, both the king Melchizedek and Abraham proclaimed the truth about God, about Yahweh, the true God, to Sodom. So Sodom was given a chance to listen to the man of God, to repent from their sin, and to worship the God who had rescued them. But they don't. Abraham knows what God will find when he goes to inspect Sodom. Verse 22. So the men, the two angels, turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, notice here, the question is not whether God will sweep away the wicked. Abraham already knows a holy and just God will purify his cosmic temple. Abraham's question is, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Will those who are righteous also be destroyed when you come in judgment on Sodom? Verse 24, Abraham says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do you see here that having been brought into the divine council, Abraham is actually allowed to question God, even to question God's justice. Verse 26, And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Sometimes the Lord spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous ones whom he loves, and we say, Thank God. For we know God has spared wicked ones like us for the sake of his righteous son, Jesus. And so God says he will spare Sodom if there are 50 righteous persons in the city. But now that Abraham thinks about it, he's not sure there are 50 righteous people in Sodom. Lord, what will you do if there are only 45 righteous? And Abraham and God go back and forth like this for six verses. Each time Abraham trembles at the idea of, of troubling God with his request, a man of dust and ashes undertaking to speak to the Lord. And yet he asks on. What about 45? What about 40? Well, what if there are 30 righteous in Sodom? What if there are only 20? And finally, don't be mad, Lord. This is the last one, I promise. Suppose... Just suppose there are only ten righteous found in Sodom. You see, Abraham is haggling with the God of the universe, right? And yet each time the Lord calmly and patiently answers, I will not do it. And finally, he says, even for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And this apparently concludes the negotiations, verse 33, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, chapter 19 tells us what happens when the two angels come to inspect the city of Sodom. Now, we're not going to get into the details, but in short, they do not find ten righteous in the city. They don't even find half that. They find Lot and his wife and his two daughters. The rest of Sodom, 19.4, tells us, both young and old, all the people to the last man, they wish to do wicked things to these visitors, to the two angels in disguise. And when Lot tries to stop the men of Sodom, they threaten him as well. But the Lord remembers the righteous. Just as he shut Noah safely in the ark, just as he will later shut the sons of Israel safely behind the doors covered with the Lamb's blood. So here, the angels pull Lot back inside the house and shut the door. And just as God will plague Egypt with darkness at the Exodus, here the angels strike the men of Sodom with blindness outside the house. And the angels say to Lot, we are about to destroy this place. Verse 15 tells us, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. The Lord will not sweep away the righteous 
with the wicked. And this recalls the story of righteous Noah, whom God remembers, and he brings Noah and his family safely through the waters. And it foreshadows the exodus when the Israelites survive the darkness and destruction of Passover night, and in the morning they rise to leave Egypt. Verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And this too makes us think of the exodus and the, the total destruction of the flood as well. But Lot and his family are rescued. Now, we know that Lot and his family are not particularly wise or faithful, and that becomes clear as we read more of their story. So why does God rescue Lot from this destruction? Well, it goes back to God's council meeting with Abraham. Look at verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God saved Lot because God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham. He didn't save Lot for Lot's sake. He saved Lot for Abraham's sake. Hang on to this idea because next week we're going to see it again with a man named Abimelech. God tells Abimelech, give Sarah back to Abraham for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. Abraham is God's prophet. Abraham is part of God's divine counsel. It means Abraham hears from God, and Abraham speaks to God, and when Abraham prays for people, God saves them. The Apostle James tells us Abraham was called a friend of God. It's more than just a term of endearment. In Israelite history, uh, we see there's a royal official who bears the title, the friend of the king, and the friend of the king was his closest advisor, his trusted counselor. That's what it means for Abraham to be God's friend. He sits at the king's right hand and he helps the king rule the kingdom. And the mind-boggling thing is that God listens to him. God receives counsel from a mortal man. And God acts according to the counsel of his prophet. God says he saves Lot for the sake of Abraham because Abraham pleaded with him, because Abraham interceded for Lot. Now, God will continue to receive his prophets into his divine counsel. He will continue to listen to them, and he will continue to save those whom they pray for. And God still works in this way. There is still a human being in the divine council. There is still a mediator between God and man. In the new covenant, a new and greater Abraham has come in Jesus Christ. One with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, Jesus was always part of the divine council. And when he took on our human flesh, that didn't change. 
God did not hide from his son what he was about to do. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, even when that meant showing the son that he must offer himself on the cross in the stead of sinners. You see, the reason that you and I will be saved when God comes down to judge the world is not because of anything in you or in me that makes us worthy. Like Lot and his family, we are foolish in our choices. We are slow in our obedience. We are always looking backward. We are giving in to the power of the flesh. And yet, the Father will not sweep us away with the wicked. He will rescue us for the sake of his chosen one, for the sake of our Abraham, our intercessor, Jesus Christ. In the first century A.D., when they brought Jesus to be crucified, a judgment far worse than Sodom and Gomorrah was ready to be poured out on the people of Jerusalem. Jesus said God was going to hold them accountable for the innocent blood of every righteous prophet they had ever killed, going all the way back to Abel in Genesis 4 and all the way down to Zechariah, the last prophet killed in the Old Testament. And in that day, they were about to kill the greatest prophet of all, the very Son of God. But instead, Jesus prayed for them. The prophet interceded for them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And God heard the pleas of his counselor, and he granted his request, and he instead allowed all his wrath to fall upon Jesus on the cross. And so for the sake of Jesus, the judgment was delayed so that many of Abraham's sons might turn to the Lord and escape his wrath over sin. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus still prays for us. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Our great high priest, our great prophet, our greater Abraham ever lives to intercede for us in the divine council. And putting our faith in Jesus, we gain so much more than just our salvation. And this is one of the reasons why the new covenant is more glorious than the old. Listen to these words from our gospel reading and think about them in light of what it meant for Abraham to be the friend of God. These words are addressed to you and me. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is what's remarkable about the new covenant. In Jesus, God took on our flesh, and therefore our very nature has been brought into the heavenly places, into the life of God. And because of that, Jesus calls each one of us friends, just as God called Abraham his friend. 
as heirs of the promises to Abraham by faith in Christ, we have all become like little Abrahams, friends of God. We're not like servants who do not know what the master is doing. God does not hide his plan of redemption from us. All Jesus heard from the Father, he says, he has made known to us. And so we have his word. We have a completed Bible. We are privy to the divine will. And because we have been chosen in Christ, we are granted the ear of God. We ask him in the name of Jesus, and he responds to our requests. He takes our counsel into consideration, even as he sovereignly rules over all things. Now, our finite minds can't understand how this could possibly be reconciled, but that's how the Bible describes it. Do you see how the scriptures grant an incredible power and significance to our prayers? Now, I confess, prayer is very difficult for me. It often feels as though it doesn't really make any difference in the world. So many times I have cried out to God to rescue, to heal, to save, and he didn't, at least not in this lifetime. It's hard to believe that prayer is this powerful, and yet this is what the scriptures teach. We are to trust that in Christ we sit at the Father's right hand, that we have a seat on the divine council. We are to pray for every aspect of our lives, and we are to pray for the life of the world because God takes our prayers into his counsel as he sovereignly rules over the world. And just as Abraham had to live by faith in the promises of God, so we have God's promises as well. The Lord Jesus has died for us. The Lord Jesus is risen for us. In him we sit in the heavenly places. In him we have become friends of God. In him we have a seat on the divine council. In him the Father hears our prayers. And despite what destruction may threaten on every side, God has promised that on the day of judgment, he will rescue us. For the sake of his Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him. Almighty God, you have chosen your church in Christ to be your friends. You have invited us to participate in your mission to redeem the world. And you graciously give us your ear. Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to offer you all our anger, our laughter, our doubts, our desires. Let this privilege that you have given embolden us in prayer and in the way we live before you and before the world. We pray, trusting that you hear and respond, because we ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.